This week's episode contains discussion around suicide. This can be triggering for sensitive listeners, so please take caution. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number can be found in the notes of this episode. Although I don't think that this felt like playtime. <laughs> no, that was a horrible analogy. <laughs> you know what? I mean, it just look at this. I was this, so like excited this. for her to die. <laughs> I'm excited. This is new. This, this is, is different. Ooh, this I've is never lost a mom. Had before. I can, I can put this. <laughs> I'm going to go into this with an open mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we are. We did it. We're back. That is Jen Hasty. And who are you? I don't know anymore. I know. Things are getting even more complicated. That is Wamas Teb. Wamas. Wamas Teb. <laughs> That's my stage name. Wamas Ted. Teb. Teb. Just call me Crockett and Teb. Wamas Teb. <laughs> uh, That's Jen Hasty. I'm Thomas Webb. This is season two of. I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you for coming back. And if you're a new listener, welcome. We are going to have an amazing season. We've got some amazing guests. And yes. we are starting off again with me. Because it's her favorite subject, people. I'm, I'm telling, telling you. you. Well, we're excited to be back. Mm-hmm. So excited. Uh, I missed that, everybody. Let's try that again because that did not come across sincere on your part, Jennifer. I know. I'm so excited. I'm so happy to be here. I know. I have such a dry way of talking. It's just the way I talk. So if I changed my inflection, could I be like, uh, how do I do it? Do I blah, blah, blah? Like, what do I do to? I think you just do every sentence like it's a question, like a valley oh. girl. Oh, people love that. Everybody thinks that the Kardashians did that like dead behind the eyes vocal fry. But if you've mm-hmm. ever watched anything out of the 60s where it's like, you know, Valley of the Dolls or any of that, they yeah. don't move their faces. Well, they're all, aren't you? They're kind of medicated. I always think of um, Rosemary's Baby, which is like my favorite movie because I like those kinds of movies. And there's a part where the friends come over because she's thrown that party. And mm-hmm. like the requirement is that anyone over 65 can't come. And there's they're in the kitchen with her friends. And one of her, they're all like this eyes, like just sort of <laughs> lost. And then one of them goes, congratulations, in a way that's <laughs> like Moira Rose. I wonder if she got, you know, her That's where she got it movie. from. Yeah. Congratulations, Rosemary. <laughs> That's wonderful. You're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it was so dead. <laughs> okay, well, that was a tangent. That's the whole episode. Welcome back. Back to trauma. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get back. Not, not because I'm excited to hear people talk about the worst parts of their life, but like just... I don't know. I just love the little community that we're uh, slowly building. And people, y'all are interesting. Yes. You're very interesting. Should we hop into your happy Let's time just story Let's hop now? right in. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm ready. This has been an interesting discovery for me, that my dad's story I've been telling for 22 years. He'll be dead 22 years in April. Mm-hmm. So the narrative is kind of locked in. Mm-hmm. My memories of it and my memories of him are pretty locked in. The only thing that changes that has fluidity to it is when I, as I get older, my opinion of him 
changes, my opinion of the things that he did, said, how he responded to things changes because I'm starting to understand more. So something that I realized, like since I've told my dad's story so many times, I have not said my mom's at all. Mm -hmm. I've done bits and pieces, mm -hmm. but I haven't like talked about it. And she died over six years ago. I don't know what's going to happen. This could be, I could just like burst into flames <laughs> in the middle of this. It's possible. For a visual for people, if anyone watches the Great British Baking Show, mm -hmm. Prue, who is the current mm -hmm. judge, mm -hmm. along with Paul Hollywood, is my mother. The way she dresses, her hair, her height, that's just to give the visual of what she looked like. I love that. She loved a statement necklace. She kind of, she she wasn't probably that big into the jewelry, but she did have like a flair mm -hmm. for fashion. Something that's funny that I want to tell people just so they get an idea. She always told me she didn't think she was funny, which is always, had always amazed me because I come from a very funny family. Mm -hmm. She said, your father's funny, your brother's funny, and you're funny, but I'm not funny. I realized she's, she was accidentally funny. So when I was a little kid, I would ask her things and I would say, mom, what is your biggest fear? She didn't hesitate. An infant with adult-sized teeth. <laughs> And when I do that voice, that is dead ringer for my mother, by the way. Then I asked her if she believed in aliens. And I was a kid still. She looks up, closes her eyes and goes, oh, I hope so. So that they can take me far, far away from her. <laughs> this was my favorite one. She had like a scratch at the top of her head where her forehead is and her hairline is. Uh -huh. And I said, what is that? And she said, oh, again, not hesitating. That's where my brain comes out of my head and lays next to me on the pillow. And then in the morning, it crawls back into my skull. <laughs> That's who she was. Have you ever seen that meme where it's like a 1950s housewife ironing? It's an alien dressed like a housewife. <laughs> and the alien is ironing like a skin suit. Oh, God. Like a costume that's a person costume? Like that? <laughs> no, I've never that's seen that. That's what that makes me think of. I'll see if I can find it's it. It's funny you say that because when they used to put me to sleep, um, I didn't have this with my, when they put me, when they put me down, like when a they dog. Put you down. When they would tuck me in, I used to imagine that I could peel her face off and there would be a little old man underneath. <laughs> that was also telling you the kind of kid that I was. Right. But also disturbed. That, man, that I was disturbed. <laughs> I mean, I've always gone dark. There's no. <laughs> I'm always going to the. Oh, he's going to kill his family. Watch out! That's the next step. And they're like, no, Jennifer. He's just getting ice cream. Nope, they're all dead. If there's ever a dateline, I will. <laughs> I will not. I say that to Michael all the time. I'm like, if I ever disappear, please don't go on Dateline talking about how like the room lit up when I walked in. Also, it's going to be like. It turns out there's a lot of people that wanted him to disappear. <laughs> there were a lot of people that wanted him dead. <laughs> yeah, don't go to Dateline because you're never going to find out who did it. Could be anybody. <laughs> so um, my mother was extremely musical and she had an absolutely gorgeous voice, singing voice. Hmm. And I used to sing with her. She was my greatest teacher and uh, she played piano very well and she was a great painter so we were very close. I always called her my best friend. I never had 
a period where I had sort of broken away from her. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a, in a, in a natural way I did as far as like, yeah, I moved away from home, but my relationship with her and my closeness with her and my desire to be with her was always there. Mm -hmm. And so it was tough, of course, when my dad died, because I think she rejected me and my brother and we rejected each other. We all just imploded. So I wasn't of any help to her. And she decided to go back to the Catholic church, not to become a nun, <laughs> but some people do that. Mm -hmm. um, she decided to go back to mass and she would take her mother because her mother, of course, was still a pretty hardcore Catholic. She found comfort in it. I think there was like familiarity in it. She met this man. It was, they were together for 10 years. His name was Marlon. Very handsome. He looked like Ronald Reagan with um, shocking white hair, really well-dressed. He had a daughter and she was deaf. My mom learned sign language to talk to this woman. She also, when we were kids, learned Braille so that she could communicate with her blind friend. Aww. And when my brother asked her why she was doing that, she said, because my friend is lonely and I don't want her to be alone. I mean, just a really good person. Mm -hmm. When she was with Marlon, my brother would see them scooting around town in his old army Jeep that didn't have the sides. Oh so she, he'd see her like holding on to the side of the Jeep. And then he had a cabin up in Yosemite National Park and she was helping him build on another room to this. <sighs> I mean, really yeah. a totally different life. Yeah. And she was having the time of her life. She was so happy. He got sick and she took care of him until he died. She was quite broken after he died. Mm -hmm. She was very depressed. So at this point, Jane was born. All of her grandchildren had been born. So she knew all of them. And then around October of 2014, she started having symptoms um, of things that a woman her age should not have. And my brother and I were pushing her to go to the doctor. How old was she at this point? She was 81. Okay. And when I think of age and I think of my mom, when I think of age and think of any vibrant woman, it's really the number does not matter. No, no. So it might sound old to somebody, but if you knew who she was and knew what she was capable of mm -hmm. and knew that she still had her faculties mm -hmm. to the end, she had her fat, she was right on it. It just doesn't make sense that somebody that strong would get sick. It still doesn't. It's weird. It doesn't match up in my brain. She was still this very independent person. And so have her going to the doctor was something that she always did. Like she made the phone call mm -hmm. and I would be like, oh, you should see a doctor for that. I know. I know. I'm going to call 2020 hindsight here. If it were what I knew later was going to happen, I would have called for her. So part of me does grapple a little with a little bit with this idea that I, I could have acted sooner because maybe it could have been better. So shit, it's already starting. So she goes to the doctor, my brother he lives up there with her, not with her, but in the town. So he's the one that's primarily taking her to appointments. And on the way home from the appointment in Fresno, she calls me and she sounded very matter of fact. She's like, well, it's cancer. I said, okay. And I just remember thinking that's fine because she is who she is. Mm -hmm. And like this, this isn't the end. No way. Cause she's just so strong. So 
she doesn't start the chemo. She has to get a hysterectomy. It started in her uterus. And usually what happens in the uterus, it's, it's contained. Mm -hmm. So they can remove things and it doesn't spread. It's very common that it won't spread. Mm. Not saying it doesn't, um, but it's common that it doesn't. So you get a hysterectomy and that's sort of it. And then you go through chemo and things like that. But the survival rate is actually pretty high. For uterine cancer? Is that what? Yes. Is that what? Okay. So this is where <laughs> the rubber meets the road pretty fast because it became clear, and this still really bothers me, insurance companies, after a certain age, mm -hmm. they would just like you to die. Mm -hmm. They have sort of decided, specifically, I'll talk to women specifically here about women. You reach a certain age. And insurance companies stop covering mammograms, pap smears, all the stuff that we annually get and need mm -hmm. to prevent cancer. Mm -hmm. They just stop that because they just don't want you around anymore. You're too expensive. Mm -hmm. It's time for you to go. If you were to die, they would save money. Yes. And so you're therefore worth more to their shareholders dead than you yeah. are alive. And not to hijack this. But no. that is why health insurance should not be for profit. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the greatest propaganda drumbeat for them to continue on with. It's a socialized medicine. It's terrifying kind of thing mm -hmm. for a capitalist death cult that we continue to live in. That is something that is barbaric. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just old people. It's look at people of color. Um, old, older people of color too. Like, I mean, it must be tenfold. Oh yeah, it's really when you really break it down, it's very cruel because yes. we throw money at mm -hmm. researching things and finding cures for things, and we, you know, announce, oh, we found this new treatment or this new cure or this thing that is is helpful, but you can't have it because you can't afford it, and it's too late for you anyway. Yeah. And I really got that impression. I did too with my mom. Almost right away. Because mm -hmm. if you don't have that advocate for you, mm -hmm. if you can't be your own advocate and you don't have somebody making those calls, you'll be dead a lot faster or you will suffer longer. Mm -hmm. So she gets this doctor. He's a surgeon. And he is the only surgeon to cover her supplement who has takes her supplemental insurance and the Medicare within like a 200 mile radius. And that's a lot of old people, mm -hmm. women. So she doesn't get the surgery until New Year's Eve. So she is diagnosed with cancer around September or October. Mm. And she doesn't get this surgery for three months, four months. We were all supposed to go to Hawaii for Christmas, including my mom, everybody, my brother's family, my family. And um, we decided that we would stay, Pete and I and Jane would stay. And my brother and his family went to Hawaii. It was really cool because it was the last Christmas I spent in my childhood home. Mm -hmm. And so Jane got to know like what it looked like when I woke up in the morning and, you know, where the Christmas tree always was and opening presents and all that fun stuff. And so I was still in this place where there was just no chance that this was going to take her out. Mm -hmm. um, I was so confident in that. She goes through the surgery pretty well, I think. Um, my brother was back from Hawaii at that point, and he and my sister-in-law and I were at the hospital where she got the surgery, and it happened to be where I was born, mm. same same place. And 
So she had two cancers removed there. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. It just you set it oh, up. Oh, that just, was very good. I'm I going to. to I'll write some down for you that are going to be like really uncomfortable. Oh, great! It's going to be like that was too far, Jen. Too far. That wasn't even funny. I know. It was just what, mean. Do you hate me? Because <laughs> that sounds like you hate me. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Um, he comes out, this guy, and he's old, old surgeon. In my mind, his head looks like a little TV set. It was like very square. <laughs> and I do not think highly of this person at all. And he's there to tell me and my brother and my sister-in-law how it went. And he looked surprised that we cared. It was weird. And then he says, casually, well, I still saw the cancer in there. And my brother goes, well, what do you mean? And he does this thing with his hands as if he's doing like rain up and down his abdomen with his fingers. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, well, you know, here. And so we were confused. So it wasn't just the hysterectomy. Like you saw it in her abdominal wall. Her oncologist, who was the only doctor that we really loved, he had gone to Catholic school, so he loved those nuns. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. He had a soft spot for my mom, so it was sweet. So she starts the chemo process. And yes, there had been some cancer in her abdomen. Sorry. I'm, so the oncologist doesn't didn't do the actual surgery? No. Okay, got it. Her oncologist was not a surgeon. Okay, got or it. Or her insurance was not covered by him. Got it. Okay. She didn't have a choice in that matter. He was very good, though, so we were very lucky to have him. The treatment plan begins, and it's the chemo. No radiation, and yes, she's going to lose her hair. And so <laughs> she was kind of excited to lose her hair. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever known a woman to be more excited about it. Her head was perfectly shaped, it turns out. Perfectly shaped head. Beautiful. So she is home, and she's doing well with the chemo. And then I would come up, this this was the beginning of me, this is very similar to Tommy's story too, of the traveling, lots of traveling. Mm -hmm. So between Thursday and Sunday, I started coming up every week. So I like lived there half the time. Mm -hmm. So I open the door and she does like a vaudeville, ta-da, right there in the kitchen with her new head. <laughs> She got some turbans and things like that. And she lost her eyebrows and her eyelashes, but she was she was handling it. Like it wasn't making her totally sick. And of course, when you start this kind of stuff, as people probably have been through things like this, is that the first rounds, you're like strong. Mm -hmm. But as it continues, it starts to take the life out of you, literally, because it's poison mm -hmm. that's trying to like kill you to make you better. She finishes the chemo treatments. And then gets some tests. She calls me from the car. I still have the message on my voicemail that she's cancer free. And it was like, yep, knew it. Of course. That I remember saying that. Of course you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way this was going to be it. So she was declared cancer free in May of 2015. Pete and I finally end up going to Hawaii with Jane. It's a great time. And I visit my mom a lot. And one of the visits around September, I want to say, she's not feeling very well. She's like not able to digest food very well. And she says, I think I have diverticulitis. And she decided she was going to call the next day to get a 
doctor's appointment, just a regular doctor's appointment. And I remember leaving reluctantly that night to come back to LA. I was a little worried. I was always in a state of worrying, even though she had been declared cancer-free. And as soon as I walked in the door back home, my brother calls me and tells me that he had to take her to the emergency room. I said, okay, I'll be up in the morning. I get a call that either that night again, I think it was the next day, and they had run some tests in the hospital, of course, and her oncologist had come in to tell her that the cancer was back. Mm. And my brother was with her, and he said that he had, he like gripped the edge of the bed and was like, no. And um, it was like in her intestines. So it turns out because it was all through her intestines that my mother was no longer going to be able to eat. So she was going to have to have this procedure, another surgery essentially, to have a feeding tube put in her stomach. She was now going to be eating out of a feeding bag, like she was going to be fed intravenously. And my brother and I and my sister-in-law became overnight nurses because we had to learn how to do this. And there's just a certain cruelty in not being able to enjoy one of life's pleasures anymore. You can't eat mm -hmm. anymore until it was still on the plan of until we figure this out to really take this thing out. It's going to be tough, but we're going to do it. And still in my mind, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm not glad it's back, obviously, but, you know, she's still really strong. She gets this surgery to put this tube in her. And this nurse comes over and shows me how to do everything. And it's pretty involved. But my brother and I, we did, we did it. And we worked together. We made sure, because of our history of not always being like that mm -hmm. after my dad died mm -hmm. and maybe being argumentative, that it was a chance, and we didn't say it, but it felt like a chance for us to treat each other with kindness. Mm -hmm. And we did. And we still do. Very grateful for that. I think that's really beautiful that you did that. You've, I know when it was happening, you talked to me about that. And then you put everything aside for the care of this person yes. you loved. Because you hear nightmare stories about that stuff, mm -hmm. siblings fighting and you know, family members interjecting themselves and just complicating things. And Some we of kept us live that. Yeah, you went through that. And it's if you can have as much clarity as possible, it's a gift to yourself and it's a gift for the person mm -hmm. that you're trying to help. And we loved her. And even though I was there for that week and a half to help her with the feeding tube and to get adjusted in her own house, my brother was getting very nervous because he wanted her to live with him. And he only lived about five minutes away, but her being alone seemed less and less of an option. I remember there was the week that I was there, we were playing Burt Bacharach and we were talking about songs that um, we loved. And we had this record growing up, Sergio Franchi. Do you remember Sergio Franchi? Mm -mm. He was sort of like a Mario Lanza. Okay. He had that kind of voice, I think, better. He sang a song called Aldi Law, which was my mom's favorite. So we were just, it was lovely to talk about that stuff. And at that time, I had been doing some songwriting. And I wrote a song for her 
because she had, <laughs> she sat at the edge of her bed and she sang to me, which um, was really amazing. And it was a song that she sang when she was little and it was called Trees. And so that week was actually really special. Um, I'm very grateful that we had that. The night that, the, the week that I'm with her, um, that is really special. There was also an event that finally forced her to realize that she needed to move with my brother. And it was the middle of the night. I was sleeping. I was barely sleeping. And I just hear her go, Jen, I'm having a problem here. And I race into the room and her feeding tube, it's sort of like popped out. I'm trying to like jam this thing together and I'm getting frustrated because for some reason it like won't stay. And so I have to like do some, I think I used string to tie it together. It was like some crazy uh -huh. contraption that I made, but as I'm making it, I'm getting frustrated and I finally get, I go, mom, this isn't going to work. You have to, you have to move in with Bernie. I think you should really take this into consideration. And then I look up at her and she's got this one tear coming down her face. And I'm like, oh God, because something that she prided herself on and she was so happy was this independence mm -hmm. that she had, which is just a death in and of itself mm -hmm. when you take that from someone. So she agreed. And my brother was relieved. I was relieved. So one night, um, she was just starting to, it just wasn't, she was sleeping constantly. She was on pain meds, of course, and she was waking up every single morning and getting violently ill. She shared a wall with one of my nieces who was a teenager at the time. And I think about her every morning. She had to hear that. She heard my mom getting really sick. And once it was done, and the pain meds would kick in, my mom would say, I feel fine. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't feel sick. And then one night I'm there and I'm in the living room. My brother has a pretty big house, so her room was far away from the living room. And it's me and my brother and my sister-in-law. I started to get upset. And I just said, I'm very worried. I just remember like kind of shouting it. And he says, I need you to look at me. And I looked at him and he goes, this is it. She knows it. And he said, do you understand? And I said, yes. And so it entered a phase that was kind of the next phase. Mm -hmm. And she had been paying into this company since, God, before my dad died, where people would come in and take care of you because mm -hmm. she always said she didn't want to burden her children. She was terrified of doing that. And we kept begging her, like, let us take care of you, please, please. And we would pay for things. And she's like, I'm going to pay you back. I'm like, please stop. <laughs> like, I can buy you toothpaste. <laughs> so um, this company is supposed to come in and they have to evaluate her. And she does these sort of cognitive skill tests and she's sharp as a whip. So she plows through that. And the woman assesses her and realizes, like, yeah, you definitely need somebody to come in. But here's the problem, <laughs> the fine print. Before this gets instigated, you have 90 days before somebody comes in. 90 days. Oh, this wow. is around November. So, And what is the reason for that? Like they, I don't know. They say it takes 90 days to set that up or something? Probably. Like, wow. Probably. Wow. It's bullshit. And no offense to that woman who came in. She was very kind. Uh, it wasn't her. But how are these things 
how do we as a society, I'm sorry, I'm sidetracking. No, no, no. How do we as a society allow these things that are just ripoffs to exist? Like, how is it that, that there isn't regulation or it just, I don't, I don't know why the bureaucracy is so allowed. Um, I can understand like 10 days. (laughs) Yeah, it, there is some setup. like I get that there's some paperwork that has to happen and right. and whatever. But ninety days feels so deliberate mm-hmm. because what they ultimately know is you're not going to be alive. Well, because ultimately they know you're not going to call them until you already need them. Right. And then in thirty days you probably like you said that you won't be alive. Yeah. yeah. So callous. It's so callous, and I, I just remember laughing because it was so crazy because she had been paying into this. For like 20 years, maybe longer, and not going to get it. One of the weekends that I'm up there, all of the weekends that I'm up there, I'm sitting with my nephew and my sister-in-law, and my brother had gone to work, and the kitchen is kind of nearby my mom's room, and we're talking, and all of a sudden my nephew goes, wait, do you hear shouting? And I stopped, and I hear my mom yelling for help. I run into the bathroom and she had fallen Mm. and she was sitting up against the cabinet and I sat down with her and I just remember I was like kissing her cheeks. I was just like sort of all over her and I'm like, you're okay. You're okay. It's okay. It's okay. And she just looked so depleted and she didn't want me to help her get up. Um, She wanted my brother and my, my niece. And I remember being like, mom, I work out all the time. I'm capable of picking you up off the floor. <laughs> like I took some sort of offense to that. It's just silly. So my brother comes back. We get her up. And it's the first time that I realized that it was over when she fell. Something just sort of clicked. Um, and I think that was the weekend Then I went back home on Sunday and I walk in the door and my brother calls me and he said I had to take her to the emergency room. I think that she was getting so violently ill that... The, the medication wasn't helping anymore. And then my mom calls me probably two hours later. Um, her doctor oncologist had come in and he told her he wanted her to go into hospice. And I started to cry. And she said, she goes, don't you cry on me, damn it. That's how she was. And I was like, I could cry if I want to. <laughs> I'm about to cry. And so we were like arguing about my right to cry. <laughs> She said, I want you to come up with Pete. I want Pete to be there. They're having a meeting tomorrow in the hospital room. And I said, okay. And so I I think I told you, and I just remember I was sitting on the couch watching television. You know, you do these like Mm -hmm. mundane, normal things. And knowing that my mom was going to die like Mm -hmm. soon and already knowing it, but like hearing it for the first time, like official, like this is it. And just this desire and this pull to be with her was very strong. It was very primal. And to take care of her, I just wanted to take care of her so, so badly. I It's still in me, but like, I want to provide that care. It's, um, it's no, don't apologize. It's so hard to accept that. It will never be enough that no matter how much you want to make it better and how much you still want them to not be suffering and all those things that you're powerless to stop it. Yeah. It's so hard to accept 
and then so harsh once there is acceptance. Yeah. You're trying to go through this and process this thing, but you're trying to stay present. I, I, I remember that feeling of just feeling like I was everywhere, sitting and just, like you said, sitting and watching TV and sitting and, but you're not there. Not there. Yeah. And I'm, I am sort of numb, but um, starting to get that anxiety, almost like a performance energy where you're like, it's coming. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to step out on stage in a minute. And that, that nervousness. The anticipation. It felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was anticipation, which is interesting to me that anticipating death feels like other anticipation too. Mm -hmm. Like it's all sort of feels the same though, but there's no like specific feeling. No, there's no grouping of anticipation or nervousness. Years ago, I had a professor that told us if you get stage fright, that nervousness and excitement are the same physical reactions in your body and yes. your brain doesn't know the difference between the two. So, right. So you just have to convince yourself that you're excited versus yes. nervous. Yeah. I've been, you know, I've been using that technique for auditions for many years, but also trying to tell my daughter that mm -hmm. and things like that. And anybody's like, I'm so nervous. And like, it's also excitement. So imagine that you're excited to do this mm -hmm. and you get to play. Um, although I don't think that this felt like playtime. <laughs> No, that was a horrible analogy. You know what? I'm going to just look at this. I was this so like excited this. for her to die. <laughs> I'm excited. This is new. This, this is, is different. This is I've never lost a I've mom. Had before. I can put this. <laughs> I'm going to go into this with an open mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so negative. God, everybody just, geez. Cancer does we... not have to be such a chore, people. But you know, people like cancer. It sucks. And there's, you know, so many people that go through it. And it's so hard knowing that your situation isn't unique yes. does not make it any less difficult. My heart goes out to people when, because society has told them this, that when they're going through that, they're still thinking, yes, but there are worse things or there are people out there or, or this happens every, and it, yeah. You don't have to do that. I am giving you permission because I know that everybody's waiting for my permission. Um, <laughs> but if you're listening and going through that, I am giving you permission to be upset about what's happening in your life. You're allowed to keep a small world sometimes. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that will ever come out of comparing grief. Nothing. And I go up there with Pete. And Jane comes with us, but she goes to stay with my brother-in-law who lived up there. And they made pizzas, I think. It was really cute. Mm -hmm. They kept her busy because she was seven years old. So my seven-year-old daughter is about to experience this too. And we go to the hospital. She's there. And we're waiting for the hospice administrator to come. And her oncologist comes in and basically says goodbye. And uh, it's just small talk. My mother loved football. She loved the Patriots, which I was teased her about because they're I'm like, they're cheaters. And she's like, no, they're not. <laughs> and I'm like, I've got two words for you, Bob. Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. Oh. So like because of his brain being yeah. messed up. So she was like very defensive about the Patriots. <laughs> anyway, um, this whole exchange <laughs> with hospice was extraordinary for many reasons. And one of them was, is I could barely breathe. You're barely able to breathe, but you're having to show that you're listening, 
and it's okay. Not that it's okay, but that it's like, I'm not going to lose it while my mother has to hear these words. While we need very important information, I'm not going to just suddenly jump out the window and make it about myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there and it's like, like I could barely catch my breath, but I was doing it silently. So it was hard to keep in. I'm sure my heart rate was through the roof. So this woman arrives with her assistant and she is the woman who's going to tell my mom what's going to happen to her is from England. Very tiny, super small. And, and talks like this, like her voice is like very. And so I understand that if you are in that position and you have to do this mm -hmm. pretty much every day, telling someone what's going to happen to their body and how they're going to die. You probably have created a narrative and you've probably created a voice mm -hmm. that you should have that is soothing and kind. And I appreciate that. But when you're with my family, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of just want to get to the point. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just get there. Yeah. So she sits next to my mom and we all take chairs in a semicircle around the edge of the bed like some kind of vigil. And this woman, she's like not getting there yet as to what's going to happen. And my mom's face, which is the exact face that I have, the exact face my brother has, is like this intense furrowed brow listening. My mom is also having a difficult time hearing her. And she, my brother and my mom had a special bond too. She could look at him. He would get the message. He would know what she wanted. And he very kindly says, you know, um, you probably can skip all this. You can just get right to it. And she, to her credit, goes, oh, okay, so let's just cut to the chase, shall we? And she starts telling my mom she'll be on a mixture of dilaudid and morphine, mm -hmm. lethal cocktail. And it will be administered into her body slowly, basically. Her lungs will fill with fluid. Eventually, your heart will stop and you will be dead. She looked at my mom and she goes, do you understand what I'm telling you? And my mom went, yes. And then we started talking about what was going to be next for us. I remember I asked about um, assisted suicide because my mother, I don't know if you remember this, but I texted you mm -hmm. that my mom had been inquiring about suicide. Mm -hmm. I remember you were like, Jen, like, do I need to come over? <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I've never, you know, had to to talk to her about that. But assisted suicide in the state of California had actually, we had voted for it, mm -hmm. but it hadn't gone into law. So it was like that summer that I think we mm -hmm. voted on it. And so this was December. I remember that now, yeah. When I inquired about it, she said it, it can't happen. But when you think about it, hospice is essentially assisted <laughs> suicide. <laughs> They've been doing it forever anyway. Yeah. It's just that you have to wait until the person is at the very end and it's like hopelessly painful mm -hmm. and horrible. And I, we talk about that a lot and I still think that that's wrong. Um, and I hope that when a person decides when they physically, and they've been given the write off by all the doctors mm -hmm. that, yeah, there's no chance that they get to choose. Mm -hmm. So I asked about that and she told us that wasn't an option. And then I think my brother asked, when will this start? And she said, as soon as this meeting is over. And then he may have asked, okay, how long do they do? Do you think she'll typically be alive mm -hmm. until it's over? And she said, eight days to two weeks. 
which I thought was long, but I was glad. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. we've got time. So then my mom says, I have to pay. So everybody had to leave, but I was the one because I medically took care of her. And um, <laughs> I'm helping her get up off the bed, but she stops and she looks at me and she goes, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you did so well. <laughs> and I told her, I said, you're the love of my life. Oh. And she said, I know. <laughs> she didn't say it back to me. though. <laughs> 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 and um, I left the room after I put her back in bed. And my brother was standing there. And my brother is really sweet because he's always in like a phase of um, having to make sure I'm okay. <laughs> I think he's had to do that since I was born. And he was like, his face, he was anticipating me coming out. And he said, are you okay? And I said, I'm going to go for a walk. And I just walked down the hallway. I could not catch my breath. Mm -hmm. Like for a long time. I probably shouldn't have been driving. Did you have a roar in your head? Yes. Or there was like a bulldozer behind my brain that was working. Yeah. It was just like a, a constant roar, like yes. we were barreling towards something. It didn't feel like a headache. No, no. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. It's like it's like a silent roar. And your nervous system is just on fire. Yeah. And I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't believe. I was like <laughs> the whole time. And I finally was able to like call people you know you start that preparation for things and so she had one more night in the hospital and then they were going to take her to my brother's house the next day so i was going to stay with her and i brought pajamas and the whole thing and we we're going to make it a fun party it was going to be a little slumber party girl slumber party so she had already started the dilated and morphine and everybody came to the hospital including jane and i'm not <sighs> I, I still don't know if that was the right thing to do because she was hiding under the little desk there that's in the hospital mm -hmm. room. Like she did not want to be there. I was at my mom's side and I had my head on the bed and she was rubbing my head with her hand. One of my nieces, she was very close to, they're very similar and they had a special bond. And so she came over to the side of the bed and she broke down and my brother really smartly said, you know what, why don't we leave so that she can have a moment with her? and say whatever she needs to say. You know, I was really glad she had that moment. I think that was very important for her and um, important for my mom too. And my mom called her sister to say goodbye. And her sister was talking about and when they were children and telling stories. And then at one point, my mom <laughs> asks about my aunt's husband, my uncle, who had died like years before. And she says, is that Peter that I hear in the background? And then she caught herself and she said, oh, no, never mind. Because then she like realized like, oh, wait, what? that's not possible. What year is this? Everybody leaves and it's just me. And they told me, the nursing staff told me, sometimes with this lethal cocktail, people get paranoid. So when she, if she gets upset, come get us and we will administer something and help her and calm her down. Well, I kind of forgot because I thought that I could calm her down. <laughs> And I didn't expect that anything would happen. So this was one of the dumber things I've done. Um, I decided to try to get into bed with her. And she wakes up. And she's like, who the hell are you? And I always read that if somebody has memory issues, you go along with what they're saying. So I said, mom, it's Jen, your daughter. And she's like, does my daughter know you're here? And I said, she does. She knows. She knows I'm here. 
And then she says, do the people in this place know that they're being experimented on? And I said, yes. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Yes, they know. And she starts doing, this was wild. She starts going through prayers that she did when she was a child. And she puts her hands together and she's like, and she's going through them. She starts praying for the people who are being experimented on in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I need to go and get help because she's starting to get very panicky and she'll fall asleep. And every time she wakes up, she's like, who are you? And so they come in and they give her something and she goes to sleep. And so the next day we're sitting there and she's pretty alert. And I don't know if this was the right thing to do or not. I probably exhausted her, but I had written down like 50 questions the night before to ask her to get it all in while I could. Mm -hmm. Simple things. What was your favorite food as a child? And the answer is grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup. And then I said, what was your favorite time in your life? And she said, childhood. And I said, why? She said, because everybody did everything for me. <laughs> I didn't have to do the cooking or the cleaning. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's actually a very legitimate answer. And then she had said that she wondered if she would see her father again. She loved her father. And she always called him a fine gentleman. She's like, I wonder if I'll see that fine gentleman again. And then um, we planned her funeral right there in that room. I said, do you want a Catholic service? And she said, oh, I guess. So she didn't really care. But then we talked about music. And that's when things, because of our love of music and knowledge of music, and that's what was important to her, um, we started talking about it. I said, what do you want? I said, it's, you know, I don't know if people know this, but the Catholic Church, you can't really use secular music. Mm. But sometimes they there are allowances. And so we were sitting there and she starts to fall asleep. And I suddenly had a memory of when I was a little girl. And she told me that she used to sing to her father. And one of the songs was um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And so I said, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And she shot out of bed. Like she just like sat up and she went, oh my God. And she got emotional and she goes, yes. Like there was a connection finally. It had meaning, mm -hmm. something had meaning. Mm -hmm. We talked about fear. I said, are you afraid? And she said, a little. And I said, what are you afraid of? And she said, what if there's nothing? What if it's just darkness? And uh, I said, do you think there's darkness? And she's like, I really don't know. Um, she says, but something tells me there's not. Um, so these people come to pick her up. And they also happen to be Patriots fans. So it was perfect. <laughs> so all the drive home, she apparently was talking about Patriots. I was in the car behind. She was in this sort of rented ambulance. And on the drive home, this is the same drive that I have done hundreds of times in my life. And many of them with my mother. We would go into Fresno and we'd go shopping. We'd go to the movies. Um, we'd go home. There were fights on those rides. There was singing on those rides. There was incredible joy on those rides. Sometimes we would unroll the, all the windows in the car. And these were the crank ones. So you had to like reach back and crank it and just scream and yell at the top of our lungs and sing, mostly singing, so much singing. And here was this last ride to her death. And we get to my brother's house. 
and they set it up and the damn bed is so small like versailles small. yeah it's like smaller than a twin size bed yeah i'm like what are you she's five foot eleven so it's like her feet are hanging off the side of the bed it's ridiculous i'm in another room <laughs> signing papers did you have to do this mm -mm. holy cow it's like buying a house i think because they had already the hospice had already begun before i got there so i didn't oh okay so your dad probably I was didn't signing have to away. do any of that yeah so many papers and then she teaches me to give my mom drops of morphine when the death rattle starts mm -hmm. um she said as we've heard many times they are not in discomfort it's usually for the person that is listening that this is needed my dad did not have a death rattle mm. so it was kind of a new experience people came by to say goodbye and my brother's best friend that he's known since they were little and his sister I've known since I was three. Um, his mom died when he was very young. He came in to say goodbye and she said, oh, my second son, my other son. I thought that was really sweet. And friends come in, uh, family's calling, we're doing FaceTime. She's in and out. And when she is out, she's asleep. But when she's awake, totally alert. We're watching a Patriots game. It's actually they're on the TV. And at one point, I'm sitting with her, I'm holding her hand, and I'm watching the game, and I look over at her, she's asleep. And then I look back at the game, and all of a sudden I hear her go, damn it, he dropped it! <laughs> so she was like, and we're like, oh, she's here. Um, she's watching the game. Like, my, oh, this part, yeah, okay. A part of hospice is a religious part. Okay, so there's a pastor mm -hmm. or priest the priest did not come i'm not sure if she had said no priest or whatever but he was definitely a pastor very nice man he comes in he talks to my brother and myself individually and we're just sort of i can tell by my brother's face in the other room that he's listening and you know it's we're being nice and and but it felt unnecessary um, considering who we were and considering at the space that we were in at that mm -hmm. moment. And then he talks to my mom and he asks if he can pray for her. And she's starting to get like starting to talk like this. And she, so she very carefully puts her hands together in the prayer position. And he does this very typical, I'd say Protestant type prayer. And then when he says, amen, she looks at him and she goes, okay, now. I want to pray for you. Oh, my God. And she does a prayer for this man. And when he left, my brother goes, that was her last F you. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I'm telling you, just a wild woman. Wild woman. So that first night, my brother was on the couch. The next night was me. And at this point, she was still talking, but more asleep, more unconscious than not. And she did say to me at one point, we have two weeks to love each other because that's how long we were told, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. No. My mom was like, get me out of here. Mm -hmm. I woke up in the morning and I slept. I don't know how. I actually slept. Like I fell asleep, deep sleep. Oh, wow. Like some sort of weird gift. And when I woke up, the death rattle was there. I had slept through the beginning of the death rattle. Really strange. And it was early enough that no one was awake yet. So I started to panic. 
and I'm talking to her and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. It's going to be okay. I'm so sorry. I'm here. I'm here. And I get the morphine and I drop it in her mouth. And not long after it stops, like the death rattle stops. And my brother comes down and I'm like starting to get, you know, panicking. He goes, Jen, we knew this was going to happen. This is how it's supposed to go. Like very practical. And I said, I know, I know. And then um, I called hospice, the nurse, and it had been snowing. And it's very difficult to get up to my brother's house with the snow. Mm. Um, so we didn't know if she was going to make it or not. And as I was talking to her on the phone in sort of another part of the room, my brother was with my mom. And he said that she went like, I took a deep breath in, shoulders went up, and then big sigh out. And that was it. And I, I, I'm really grateful that he had that because I was with my dad mm -hmm. and he wasn't there. And so that he was able to be with one mm -hmm. of our parents, just him. And I think my, my sister-in-law was nearby. And we begin the process uh, treating her like a vampire and putting a mirror up to her mouth. Oh, I was like a nose. necklace of garlic around her? What? Oh my God. Like, is she dead? Because your brain starts playing <clears throat> mixed messages with you. you think you can you still see them like, breathing? And, yeah. yeah, the chest is going up and down. And so I was like, I don't know. So you're still like, I don't know. But we're like, I'm kissing her and I'm holding her. And then the nurse comes, like she did it. She made it really fast. And uh, she puts the stethoscope to my mom's chest and I'm on the other side directly across. And she just looks up at me and she nods. And she has a very sweet and sympathetic look on her face. And of course, it's when you get that, like, it's done. Mm -hmm. That's when everything just falls and falls out. My brother and I started crying. And I grabbed my sister-in-law. Like I didn't hold my brother first. I held my sister-in-law mm. <laughs> and I didn't have anybody there with me. Pete and Jane were gone. Um, they said their goodbyes, but they thought they were going to be up like in a few more days. Mm -hmm. And I had this incredible urge to be with her, to be with my mom. Like I'm not letting her out of my sight. Mm -hmm. This is for me. This is my job. My brother um, with instinct, I'm sure, left the room and started talking about arrangements and things like that. She said, do you have something to put her in? And I said, yeah, I just brought her these really nice nightgowns. And I was going to like put it over her head. And she goes, no, no, no. She cuts the back out so that you don't have to move the body. And we start washing the body. And the, the nurse was like, didn't ask me if I wanted to be a part of it. It was a very natural, like, you and I are going to do this. Mm -hmm. And it was very beautiful. And then I would collapse in the middle of this bathing. And I'd lay on my mom's chest and I'd tell her how beautiful she looks. And um, the woman is, like, comforting me. And it was just this, I, I, it's hard to explain, like, how wonderful that was. And I wish I'd remember this woman's name because I wanted to talk to her after. And... We get her ready, and then the mortuary comes. She did not have to go to the morgue because we called the mortuary before she died. I don't know if you know that this is a law in California. Before the person is actually dead, if you call the mortuary to tell them that this person is going to die and to expect a body, they don't have to go to the morgue first. Oh, Isn't that weird? Yeah. Did not know that. So these two men come to get her, and they wrap her in a sheet, which is always really eerie. Yeah. And they wheel her out, and it was it had snowed the night before, so there was it was very cold. And they put her in the ambulance, 
And I walked down that driveway. I would not let it out of my sight until it had reached a corner where it was gone. Like I just, the pull to be with her was so powerful. And then my brother and I were sitting on the couch and we hold hands for a moment, but it doesn't last long. And then he tells me her last words, which were fantastic. And it was, you are the wool gatherer. You gather and spin the wool. Those were her last words. And what do you think that meant? (laughs) I don't know. That was my mom. My mom's favorite book was Paradise Lost. Hmm. That is a complicated Mm -hmm, book. mm -hmm. It's a poem. She was a complicated person and a rebel to the end. When he, when he told me that, I had like a laugh and a cry at the same time. And it was perfect. It just was perfect. So we go to the morgue or mortuary and we start that process of picking things out. And I have the distinct memory. My brother probably has a different memory than I do of me sitting there and, and the guy who's like helping us. And then my brother looking at me like, is she okay? Is she going to be okay? Because I was just like half gone. And we picked out a coffin that was similar to my dad's. I had an outfit in mind um, that I knew that she would like that was very pretty that I'd bought for her um, years before. And they wanted shoes. I was like, really? That night, I was alone still. And I had had too much to drink. And I was in the room that she had stayed in. She didn't die in the room where she was staying. She died in the living room. But I was staying in the bed that she had stayed in. And I lost it in a way that I'd never in my life, like screaming. Mm-hmm. And my brother and sister-in-law had come down to sort of pick me up. And I just sat on the edge of the bed with them and I was just devastated. And they put me in bed and my brother tucks me in basically. And the next morning I was like, sorry, you know, this big outburst there. And he goes, no, I was just so lonely for you. And at one point that day, I had gone outside and screamed. um, I put paper in my mouth to try to muffle the sound so I could scream (laughs) because I didn't want the neighbors to freak out. Do you think that was because you just wanted to, you needed a release of everything that had built up? Yeah. It was still, um, I had this for a really long time, this feeling that it was temporary that there was no way that she was gone. Like, this is so stupid that she's gone. And then having to now have the the monologue that both my parents were dead, that was something new. And I still struggle with that. And I'm like, my parents are dead. It's not just one, it's both. And so um, that night of the memorial, people, her friends were lovely and they put together like a little singing group and Uh, that she'd been a part of. And this woman shows up and she's probably in her sixties and she's by herself. Everybody speaks and she gets up there and she goes, well, I knew Cappy as um, mother Catherine. She was one of her students Mm -hmm. flew in from New York. And she said, we loved her, but we never knew what happened to her. No one ever told these kids that their favorite teacher, their favorite nun had left to get married. No one ever told them that. Oh, wow. She just disappeared one day and they refused to tell her, tell these kids why. High school girls. So here she was. We, this is when we found out that my mother had been a mother. We didn't know that she had graduated to like mother superior type mm-hmm. stuff. 
we always thought it was just sister Catherine. And we're like, my brother and I are just astounded by this story. And here she was. And she talked about how my mother was really fast. Like she played sports with them. She played guitar. She sang to them that they went to her with all their problems because they trusted her. They loved her. And so she was just never a different person. Like she was always that person. Mm -hmm. And that was a really amazing thing. We started hearing from people, especially online. We've put it on Facebook. And the school where she taught posted a, a nice sort of article in their newsletter, the school newsletter, and they called her Sister Catherine, still called her Sister Catherine. They put these two pictures up of her that I had never seen before. They were both in black and white. She was in her full habit. One, she's sitting at a desk. And then the other one, she's standing with two other nuns and they're wearing, they're holding what I believe are field hockey sticks. And I took that picture and I posted it. Or I think I reposted. And I guess in the repost, it sort of tags the school or the person who originally posted it. And I got an email because in my post, I put, my mother is the third one from the left. I got an email from like the headmistress of the school asking me to take it down or to repost that it was not my mother. And I was furious. I'm thinking, so that bothers you? Like that's where you're going to put a line in the sand? You're going to plant your flag in that? There's a school in Canada where 600 bodies of children on a Catholic school grounds were found. There are 10,000 children that have been abused mm -hmm. from the 50s to the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. But this is what upsets you? This is where you're going to take it? And was that because your mother had left the church? or Yes. And became a wife and a mother. So I emailed back one word. No. Period. It was like, how dare the, you? The audacity of that. The audacity. And so months later, I got out of Facebook anyway. I was done with it anyway. But it was I could just kept it up there. I'm like, no. But that's what I hate about... And I want to be clear when I say this, I'm not talking about Catholicism, so I'm not coming for anybody's religion necessarily. <laughs> I will. I'll come for it. <laughs> but I am talking about the church. Mm -hmm. Yes. There is an ego. I mean, and it's not, unfortunately, unique to just the Catholic church. I think the Baptist churches I grew up in, the Southern Baptist churches I grew up in and all of that, like, it's like an ego of the church. Mm -hmm. And we must protect that at all costs. But protecting yep. it is, in their mind, hiding anything that is off the beaten path or out of the narrative that they want. That's why it's an outsider that finds these yeah. things. It was the Boston Globe that uncovered all of the abuse. Yeah. It was somebody else up in uh, Canada, who indigenous children, of course, because who cares about right. them, right? It's never from them. And then you have a pope that's still wishy-washy on LGBTQIA rights. I am so confused by him. He will make an announcement that is that you're like, wow, that is progressive or not even progressive, but it's just like, oh, the humanity in that. Oh, finally, mm -hmm. they're looking at they're looking at other people as human beings, but then he mm -hmm. will backtrack it. And it's almost like he says it. And then the church is like, you need to reel that we back still, in. We love you. God loves you, but it's still but not it's accepted still and not. you're still going to hell. Yeah. But the worst thing you can do is post a picture of your deceased mother on Facebook and call her your mother because she had been a nun in your church. And the loneliest, loneliest part of her life. How dare you? She didn't get back to me after I said well, no. I mean, 
that was kind of definitive. <laughs> I should have just written back, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and Thoughts prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> My brother and I have to plan the um, funeral too. And we finally, <laughs> um, somewhere over the rainbow. And we have to push for this with this church. The most important thing to me, I don't know if it was to my brother, but we had to get somebody that really knew how to sing because I'm not going to dishonor my mother's memory by getting some mediocre singer. Right. So finally he comes up with a name and I went, oh my God, does she live here? And it, her name was Tamara Tackett. And if she's listening, her voice is gorgeous and it's very well trained and she can hit those notes. And she agrees to do it. And it was perfect. And I was blown away. And I was so grateful. And I'm still so grateful because it was just honoring her so deeply to have somebody that could sing like that. And so we're going through all of these like rituals of this mass. And the old woman who's sort of like almost like a wedding planner, but it's a funeral planner. And she's telling us where to sit. And we thought we could just sit up in the front row because we're the family. And she made us move. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. And then the priest says, his sermon is like, what would Cappy think if she were here today? What would Cappy say? All this stuff. And my brother and I had the exact same thought at the same time without saying it out loud, which was, she'd say, get on with it. <laughs> <sighs> so it's over. She's buried in the rain, just like my dad. And the priest gives me this like, crucifix with a beautiful white Jesus <clears throat> hanging on the cross. And we go back to my brother's house for that really super fun after funeral party. So at one point I'm standing with some friends from high school. They're my brother's friends. I think they're older than me by a couple of years. And I think I just start to sort of unravel. Like they were watching me unravel and little did they know it had already begun. <laughs> but I look at all of them. I go, are your parents still alive? And one by one, they're like, yes. I'm like, Is your your parents are still alive? Like, I'm just taking stock mm -hmm. of who's dead and who's mm -hmm. alive. And like, how alone am I in this? Mm -hmm. My brother has a couch that's in the middle of the room. <laughs> and in the middle of this party, basically, I fell asleep. And I didn't wake up until later that night. And everyone was gone. How weird must have that looked to people? But everybody, of course, was kind. And, <laughs> but I they're like, basically passed out. knocked herself out. <laughs> passed out middle of the room well, everybody's leaving well jen's handling this really well she's really do you want to check her pulse yeah, oh, i'm sure we she's don't fine. are we getting a two for one here <laughs> should we call the mortuary now so that she doesn't have to go to the morgue and then i could not get out of that town fast enough it wasn't me trying to get away from my brother nothing like that i just had to get out mm -hmm. i had to completely shed myself of this. And my brother and I had two very different experiences where he was in a town where everyone knew my mother and he was stopped constantly from people to say they're sorry mm -hmm. and how much they loved her. And I was in a town where nobody knew her. So I was sort of able to hide. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an understatement to say that I wasn't doing well. And I still wonder if I'm not doing well. I kept up with my workout regimen. It wasn't like I did with my dad. I was determined to not let myself go physically. 
And so I'd walk to the gym and I'd teach spin and then I'd walk home and then I'd walk, 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 constantly. I mean, I would say that without the risk of sounding judgmental, like it, you were almost hyper aware of that. Yeah. You allowed that to be your distraction, your outlet. It was my outlet. And I cried a lot Mm -hmm. to the point where Jane, I would hear her go to see Pete and go, mom's crying again. Like it was just... I couldn't stop. I I couldn't believe she was gone. Um, my brother would call me and he would say the simple things like, yeah, we sure do miss mom around here. And I couldn't talk mm-hmm. words. I was just too freaked out. I had cousins calling me all the time, asking me if I was okay, telling stories about my mom. Couldn't talk. My aunt would call her sister. Still couldn't talk. Sometimes when she talks about her now, I can barely talk about it. But um, I was, I feel like I'm still in that space a bit. It's not, you know, I don't cry every day. And I am in a much more thoughtful space of like remembering how I was raised and remembering who she was and looking at pictures of her and things like that. I did a funny thing. I, her wedding dress had always been in the closet and then we never did anything with it. It was like yellowed and all that. And I never really did anything with mine, but I found a company in Napa Valley. I don't know why Napa, but that should indicate that it wasn't cheap. (laughs) I took both dresses. I sent them up there and I had them refurbished. I guess you could say I kept trying to do these things to sort of recreate her as if there was more to be done. Mm -hmm. So something that I did want to mention is the grief over the loss of home. This has been the lingering grief. The house that I grew up Mm -hmm. in, we sold it. We emptied it. And we did it quickly. My brother and I were like, get it out, like be done. We were very, very quickly moving. Mm -hmm. And I think we probably moved too fast, but we were very desperate, I think, to get that part over with. My brother was the one who pretty much had to handle all that. And he texted me once and he said, I'm walking through the house and it's totally empty. There's nothing in there. I see pictures of it because they post it on like realtor.com and I have them on my phone. And sometimes I look at them because I go through room by room. That happened there. That memory was there. Mm -hmm. That's where my parents slept. That's where the Christmas tree was. I still struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And I dream about it all the time. Like the house is always in my Mm -hmm. dreams. But it's that song like this house is not home or the chair is just a chair. Mm -hmm. Like how can I have kept that house? Because we could have kept it. It, it, She's not there. Like why would I keep Mm -hmm. it? Because to me it's just a house now. But every aspect of that yard, every tree has a memory. Mm Mm-hmm. I climbed there. I learned how to walk there. Uh, when I went home the last time, you know, they've sold my brother's house. That was my grandmother's house. And they've cut these like, you know, 150, 200 year old oaks down that oh. were there. And and all I could think about was I had to rake those leaves and I hated it at the time. But I, every time I go home, I'm like, well, there's no more leaves to rake. Everything changes. The meaning of things becomes clearer. It was always yes. there. You just weren't necessarily connecting the dots or aware of it in the way that you are after death and grief. It's almost like I want, I wanted her to suddenly appear in that kitchen window Mm -hmm. with the sink 
and me standing in the driveway and I'd see her there. That kind of memory, that kind of visual mm-hmm. is a part of me, but it's also gone. Mm-hmm. I'm trying, it's not, I don't know what I'm trying to do when I do that because it's like, I just want to capture, it's like smell. There, are, I still have a couple of things from her house that smell like mm-hmm. that house. And I will bury my face mm-hmm. in it sometimes because memory and smell are created in the same place in your mm-hmm. brain. And it's a part of like, I just, God, I wish I could see her again. Yeah. I wish I could see her. I miss her. And it's the only way that I can phrase it is imagine that you're pushing up against something that won't move. Mm-hmm. And you are pushing as hard as you can and you're sweating and you're pulling muscles and it won't move. And that's how much I miss her. Mm-hmm.